Welcome to the Florida Roundup, and thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. Well, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was inaugurated for a second term this week. The ceremony happened as the nation marked the second anniversary of the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Yeah, that's right, Matthew. And in his address, the governor laid into the federal government and also Democratic-run states, portraying Florida as what he calls a citadel for freedom. Now, Florida's success has been made more difficult by the floundering federal establishment in Washington, D.C., federal government has gone on an inflationary spending binge that has left our nation weaker and our citizens poor. It has enacted pandemic restrictions and mandates based more on ideology and politics than on sound science. And this has eroded freedom and stunted commerce. Meanwhile, DeSantis begins his second term still downplaying speculation that he's ramping up a 2024 presidential bid. Join us here on the Florida Roundup, our first one of the new year, as we talk about the governor's second term and what that means for the state. 305-995-1800 or tweet us at Florida Roundup. Well, let's check in on this with John Kennedy. He's Gannett, Florida Capital reporter. John, thanks for being with us. Good to be here. Thank you. First of all, give us a sense of the mood at the inauguration. What was the crowd like? Well, the crowd is uh, supportive of the governor. There's about 3,000 people outside the uh, historic old capital in Tallahassee. Uh, most of those are, uh, you know, invited guests, uh, though there was a, a certain uh, ability for the public to get a ticket into this. But, you know, it's a big, big fundraising event for the governor. Uh, actually, in this case, it's for the Florida Republican Party. So most of those that are uh, standing outside, seated outside the uh, the Capitol, listening to the inaugural, um, they are Republican supporters, Republican activists from around the state. And, uh, you know, what they heard from DeSantis uh, sounds like term two is going to be very similar to what we've seen out of him for uh, at least the last couple of years. Uh, mm-hmm. Combative, headline grabbing, uh, kind of performative politics for uh, sort of a Fox News uh, devoted uh, audience where he plays to voters who support him and he demonizes the opposition. Yeah, we did hear quite a lot of the catchphrases that he's deployed over the second part of the first term of uh, his governorship of Florida. He returned to the theme of what he calls woke ideology in his inaugural address, highlighting education reforms. He said universities and colleges must focus on academic excellence and not, quote, the imposition of trendy ideology how do you see that being translated into policy? Well, it's a little uh, unclear at this moment, but he is definitely going to make a move at uh, colleges and universities in this state. Uh, his uh, press office conveniently tweeted out just the day after the inaugural um, his request that had been sent via a, a, a memo on December 28th to colleges and universities asking for more detail about their spending on uh, diversity programs, uh, uh, as he described it, critical race theory, how that is uh, you know, filtering into uh, the education system. So I think you're going to see something coming out in his budget, probably, um, which is going to be released uh, probably next month. Um, Mm -hmm. budget recommendation that will try to get at limiting how um, uh, diversity is, uh, you know, discussed in colleges and universities. So, Mm -hmm. um, again, that's sort of all part of this anti-woke thing that has become uh, so central in his uh, in his policies. John, there's been a lot of speculation and talk about whether Governor DeSantis might want to run for president. Um, I'm wondering... From your perspective, what stood out for you about the inaugural address? Did it seem like it was Florida-focused or more outward and upward-looking? Yeah, it it definitely was more outward and upward. Uh, There was not too much mention of uh, things in Florida other than, you know, his success with uh, grappling with uh, Hurricane Ian in the fall and uh, some of the, um, you know, somewhat remarkable spending that he has done. Uh, mm-hmm. on water quality in this state. But yeah, a lot of it was aimed at a national audience when you see, uh, you know, he, he's ridiculing uh, other states, uh, you know, undoubtedly blue states that he claims uh, grinded their citizens down in recent years while he in Florida lifted people up. Um, he uh, 
talked about his family friendly policies in the state. You know, those are the parental rights legislation that critics have uh, called don't say gay. You know, it has uh, mm -hmm. been a super divisive element. But, you know, all this is working in Florida. We got to remember, you know, DeSantis won the state uh, in November by 19 percentage points. That was the biggest victory by a Florida governor in 40 years. So, right. uh, you know, that's not bad. So something something is is resonating with uh uh, Florida voters right now. And uh, apparently it, it is some of what uh, DeSantis is promoting. There is a question though, right, about whether that kind of travels well, because as you point out, he won by a landslide in the midterm elections, but other states uh, where there were conservative candidates, including some of those who DeSantis campaigned for and endorsed, they didn't do so well in all cases. Do you anticipate the message from the governor could change if in fact he is lining up a presidential campaign? I know that that is a question that we, you know, still are puzzle over whether you're ever going to see a, a moderating Ron DeSantis, uh, you know, based on Tuesday's uh, inaugural, I would say no, because mm -hmm. he uh, seems to really be, you know, ratcheting up this attack on what he often refers to as they, you know, uh, basically, you know, as he describes it, people who believe in faddish ideology, that's a version of his anti-woke thing, that they have harmed public safety, he says, by coddling criminals. They have imposed unreasonable demands on uh, taxpayers with public spending, and they've harmed education by bowing to partisan interest groups. It's always, uh, you know, somebody behind the tree that, uh, you know, uh, the governor is warning uh, people about. And I think that is a message that really resonates with Fox News. You hear a very similar uh, kind of uh, theme coming out of conservative media right now. And I think uh, the governor is really seeking to capitalize on that. And, you know, if he does get into the Republican uh, presidential race, as is widely expected, um, it would seem that this is something that uh, uh, capturing that Republican primary, which is going to be crowded, uh, you know, he's going to have to play to that right wing of the party right now, which is pretty substantial. And I think that's all we're going to see out of him going forward. Today, January 6th, is the two-year anniversary of the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. We still don't have a speaker in the House of Congress, which is kind of unprecedented. Nationally, Republicans are divided. How do you see DeSantis trying to carve out a national lane for himself in this climate? Yeah, well, I think it's just uh, hitting on these points that we've seen, you know, this kind of anti-woke theme, uh, some of the parental rights movement, uh, his his work on turning school boards toward, uh, you know, more conservatism. I think all those are going to be the kind of things that he uh, advances going forward, you know, in, in some new variations. He's already done a lot of this during term one, but I think... Um, uh, his appeal is that while Washington, as conservatives see it, is very broken, um, you know, notwithstanding the difficulty the Republican uh, caucus in the House is having electing a speaker right now, um, I, I think uh, DeSantis likes to portray himself as a successful uh, Republican uh, conservative who has made it work in Florida and he could take this on the national stage. I think the kind of uh, contributions we've seen him, uh, you, know, you know, gather from people uh, nationally shows that a lot of people are believing that he is the guy who can, uh, you know, carry those conservative themes to the national stage. This is the Florida Roundup. And as we talk about the governor's second term, as we mentioned in his inaugural address, he called Florida the place where, in his words, woke goes to die. As John mentioned, that approach is certainly playing out in academia. Professors across Florida say they've been forced to scrap courses altogether or drastically revise curriculum. Of any references to materials, the DeSantis administration says conflict with a new law. Daniel Golden is senior editor and reporter at ProPublica, and he's been writing about this. Daniel, good to have you on the Florida Roundup. Thanks for having me. You interviewed a number of Florida professors who are experts in their field. How is the new law around the teaching of race on campus and other sensitive subjects impacting their work in the classroom? Uh, it seems to be having quite a bit of impact, uh, particularly at the University of Central Florida, where uh, last fall, uh, all three of the courses related to race were canceled because the 
the professors were uh, anxious, you know, worried that they might be uh, accused of being in violation of the law. That that Stop Woke Act specifically targets a uh, a doctrine or a theory or research that's quite often taught in sociology classes around the country, which is that ostensibly race-neutral laws or policies or approaches can have a discriminatory uh, intent or impact. This is known as colorblind racism. But the law says, you know, racial colorblindness must be portrayed as a virtue and you can't uh, promote or espouse it as racist. And so uh, what is commonly taught in sociology classes around the country today is contrary to what the law allows. So you know, where people are afraid to teach it. So where where DeSantis, you know, speaks of Florida being a citadel of freedom, to these professors, it's essentially a citadel of censorship. They're experts on this topic. They've done research on it, and yet they can't talk about it in the classroom. And some are just uh, walking away from the profession, if not just dropping the classes that they plan to teach. Is that right? Well, in those cases, they, they cancel the class, the classes. Uh, in other cases, uh, I, I didn't interview anyone who was walking away from the profession, but people are changing how they teach in various ways. Uh, uh, for example, they'll have a disclaimer in the syllabus. Uh, they'll uh, avoid uh, certain words or terms that they think might cause students to complain about them or, or outsiders to complain about them, like white privilege, for example. So I think they're modifying and muting their tone. And I think also they don't sense a great deal of support in general from above, from the administrations of, of these universities, uh, because the universities are dependent on public funding and uh, they and they don't necessarily want to alienate the, uh, the state the state government. So much of the emphasis on uh, changing these curriculums revolves around what's known as CRT or critical race theory, which is primarily a theory that's taught in law schools, not at the undergraduate level. But tell us what you discovered about this conservative emphasis on going after CRT. Well, I don't. I personally don't think that CRT is, is just taught at law schools. There's plenty, as I mentioned, plenty of courses and discussions about critical race theory, not necessarily even using the term, but, you know, related analysis in all sorts of departments in the social sciences and humanities. So attacks on critical race theory uh, go far beyond law school. That The doctrine that I just mentioned that, uh, uh, you know, about colorblind racism is essentially uh, part of critical race theory. And, you know, critical race theory, in its essence, holds that, uh, you know, it's the, it's the study of or the analysis of systemic racism in uh in laws, policies, systems around the country. And essentially the conservative position on it is that there is no such thing as systemic racism. It's an absurd idea because we don't have laws and policies that specifically say, uh, you know, we're doing this to uh, hurt this race or, or that race. Um, but of course, as I mentioned, there are laws and policies that may in their language be race neutral, but nevertheless have a discriminatory impact. I mean, think of, uh, you know, voter ID laws and voter suppression laws. Think of uh, three strikes and you're out laws, drug laws, uh, policies implementing these things. Uh, even think of, you know, legacy admission at, at elite co selective colleges for, for children of alumni overwhelmingly benefits whites and it's part of the higher education system. So it's certainly at least arguable that there is such a thing as systemic racism. There's a lot of evidence and research behind it. And uh, uh, essentially by trying to ban it, you know, the state government is uh, intruding on the academic freedom of these universities and, and their, their ability to discuss what their expertise and their research has shown to be true. Now, earlier we heard John Kennedy mention uh, the governor's state budget could certainly be wielded uh, on campus to execute his policy preferences. UNF in Jacksonville was apparently recently asked to report its expenditures of state resources on programs and courses related to CRT and what's called DEI, or Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. 
Uh, what are your thoughts about how uh, state budgets could be reallocated when it comes to the restriction of these kinds of materials on college campuses? Well, we've seen this in a variety of, of states, uh, red states, not just Florida. You know, for example, in in Idaho, uh, uh, the legislature cut Boise State's budget in an effort to to stop it from having diversity, equity, inclusion programs and and staff. And the university was quite cowed, and uh, it took the words uh, I think diversity and inclusion out of its strategic plan, and it. Uh, had a job search for somebody who would have been a, a top administrator in these areas, and it halted the job search. So, you know, evidence from other states indicates that uh, if if Florida, you know, which is very aggressive about this kind of stuff, goes ahead and cuts or threatens to cut public university budgets unless they uh, uh, decrease their investment in diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, you know, the universities may well uh, buckle under and. Uh, in, in my view, that would be unfortunate, but when, you know, when you control the purse strings and you want to dictate what's happening in academia, you know, you may be able to. Terry tweets the show, why would any educated person want to stifle the truth of our racial history? Now, you write at the federal level that uh, conservatives are drafting a potential suite of executive orders in 2024 with an eye toward the presidential election. Uh, they say they are seeking to disrupt the national network of what they call left-wing ideological production and distribution. What would that look like? Well, I don't, I don't know for sure, but uh, I would say that it would likely replicate or look similar to a lot of what DeSantis has done or plans to do in Florida. You know, things like the law that we're discussing, the Stop Woke Act, some version of that to try and intimidate uh, colleges and universities uh, from uh, uh, teaching about systemic racism or uh, having uh, you know, diversity and equity and inclusion initiatives. Uh, I, I don't know exactly how far those orders would go and what their legal standing would be, but I think that it would be basically the same roadmap just writ large. And, you know, I, I mean, the, the the person who commented made a good point. I mean, not we talk about professors canceling the classes. You know, the victims are the students. I mean, they're left in in ignorance and uh, the, you know not being exposed to cutting edge thought in fields like sociology. And in fact, you know, you could even argue that a law like the Stop Woke Act, which seeks to prevent teaching of systemic racism is a kind of example of the systemic racism that conservatives deny exists uh, because it's an effort to suppress uh, uh, understanding and open conversation about uh, the role of uh, race in our uh, laws and, and policies and governments. Well, I want to thank both of you for your reporting and for joining us uh, on our first show of the new year. John Kennedy, Capitol Bureau reporter for the USA Today Network and Daniel Golden, senior editor and reporter at ProPublica. Thanks to you both for joining the Florida Roundup. We appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Bye. Still to come, a federal appeals court rules against a transgender student from St. John's County in a landmark case. That's next when the Florida Roundup continues from Florida Public Radio.
Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. And I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. Well, after a five-year legal battle, a sharply divided federal appeals court has upheld a St. John's County school board policy. It prevented a transgender male student from using boys' bathrooms at the local high school, Nice High School. The 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in a 7-4 decision said the policy did not violate the constitutional equal protection rights of Drew Adams. Adams was required to use a gender-neutral single-stall bathroom or girls' bathroom while a student at Nice High School. Yeah, and now the court's majority also said the policy did not violate Title IX. Title IX, of course, is the federal law that prevents discrimination based on sex in education programs. What's your reaction to this decision? It could set a widespread legal precedent when it comes to these kinds of cases involving transgender students. Give us a call. We're live statewide here on the Florida Roundup. The number 305-995-1800, 305-995-1800, or tweet us at Florida Roundup. Jim Saunders is executive editor at News Service of Florida, and he's been covering this case from the beginning. Jim, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. I should note, too, we did reach out to the district uh, for a a guest to join us from the district, the school board, or the um, district, but they declined to appear. They did give us this statement, though. Let me just read that. We are pleased with the 11th Circuit Court of Appeal decision in the Drew Adams case, the court's opinion was supported by sound legal reasoning and common sense. Under this decision, the district will be able to protect all students' rights. I commend our legal team at Sniffen and Spellman PA on their tireless efforts and our school board for their leadership. And that is a statement from Superintendent Tim Forson. Well, uh, Jim Saunders, let's talk about this uh, ruling from the appeals court. Judge Barbara Lagoa, writing in the majority opinion, talked to about the right to privacy. What did she say about how this decision impacts a students' rights to privacy? Well, she focused a lot on the privacy of other students um, and, uh, you know, saying that uh, by allowing uh, Drew Adams to uh, use boys' bathrooms, that it could affect the privacy of other students. Um, She, um, you know, said that uh, um, this did not discriminate against Adams um, and uh, or unfairly discriminate against Adams. But she, as I said, she she kind of focused on the privacy of other students and saying that could essentially violate boys' privacies if the transgender male was allowed into their bathrooms. Mm -hmm. What was the argument against that? Well, uh, you kind of have to chisel down a little bit. Um, There's there's a lot of back and forth in these opinions. Uh, (laughs) This is kind of, it was kind of remarkable to read because there's a majority opinion. Legault wrote that. She also wrote a concurring opinion, and there were four dissenting opinions. So there's a lot of back and forth in this case. But her position basically is that you know sex is 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 determined uh, by uh, your biological uh, you know characteristics when you're born. That's base the basics basis of her position and the majority's position. The other, the dissenters in the case, the dissenting judges said that there's more to it than that, that gender identity is a, is a part of determining sex as well. So they were uh, more focused on what they perceived as the rights of Adams to use the bathrooms, uh, as opposed to the privacy issues that, that, that Lagoa and the other uh, members of the majority focused on. Mm-hmm. Um, it were two pretty much diametrically opposed views of these issues. And again, a lot of it came down to how they defined sex. Um, and, um, you know, that's particularly important in, in Title IX because it, Title IX is, is a landmark law, but it really doesn't define, according to these rulings, it really doesn't have a clear definition of what is sex sex meaning gender. Hmm. Uh, and so um, 
you know, as, as I said, it was the, the, the opinions are just diametrically opposed in how they view that. And that is, that is a real basis for all of this discussion back and forth. Mm. Um, at this now point... This, the, this case uh, began, it's been going through the courts for quite some time, right? I mean, it began way back in 2017. I wonder if you could just remind us what led up to this decision uh, by the Court of Appeals. Right. Um, Adams and his mother filed a, a federal lawsuit uh, uh, and a, a, a U.S. district judge in Jacksonville ruled in their favor. Uh, then it went up to the 11th Circuit, which is in Atlanta, and um, a, a three-judge panel of that, that court ruled in their favor. And then sort of an unusual, I mean, it's not unprecedented, but somewhat unusual event was that the full 11th Circuit decided to take up the case. Um, as we reported, and it's pretty, you know, it's a matter of public record. The seven judges on the court who, who ruled in favor of the St. John's County School District were all appointed by Republican presidents. The four dissenters were all uh, appointed by Democratic presidents. So there's a very clear ideological uh, split uh, as to this issue. Um, that court, uh, the 11th Circuit, has become vastly more conservative in recent years, in part because uh, former President Trump ha had a series of, of uh, appointments to it. And I think it's, um, uh, you know, this this ruling is a is a pretty clear indication of the conservatism of that court. Mm -hmm. um, so let me ask you this, too. I mean, obviously, the the case was before the courts for so long that Drew Adams graduated from high school uh, while that was in play. But what does the decision mean for other transgender students in Florida public schools? Because people are seeing it as something of a precedent setter. Yeah, I think it potentially has vast um, implications. We already saw a report this week, uh, I think it was by the Tampa Bay Times, that the Pasco County Schools quickly uh, made their policy to be in line with the St. John's County uh, uh, policy. So that's an, that was within days, immediately. Mm -hmm. um, so that, uh, again, if a transgender uh, male student there will not be able to go to the boys' bathrooms. So that was an immediate effect. I mean, that's a pretty good signal that these school districts have been watching this. The other issue, which we did some follow-up reporting on, is that... Um, I think that this the Eleventh Circuit signal pretty clearly that they will take similar positions on issues of um, transgender females participating in uh, women's or girls' sports teams. That's been a big issue. It was a big issue in Florida a couple of years ago, and the legislature passed a ban on transgender uh, uh, females participating on college or high school girls or women's sports teams. Um, there's there's a, there's um, wording in this in this in the majority opinion that, that alludes to that uh, that issue. There's also Lagoa wrote a concurring opinion that pretty much focuses on that issue and how it relates to Title IX. Um, there is a case out of South Florida. It was filed in Fort Lauderdale challenging the ban that was passed by the legislature on again, transgender um, girls and women participating in these sports teams. That that case was filed after that law was passed in 2021. And it the judge specifically put it on hold until this bathroom case got resolved by the 11th Circuit, which is a pretty good indication to me that that judge is going to look at, at, at this 11th Circuit uh, ruling and apply it or could apply it to the to the athletes issue. Interestingly, I, I checked that case today and the judge has already set a hearing for next week to get a status update. Um, so things are moving. And I think, uh, you know, there could be quite a, you know, some pretty far reaching implications uh, in the courts uh, from this case. Um, mm -hmm. You know, one question that remains is whether Adams attorneys would appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Right. Um, we've not seen any uh, resolution of that at this point. It's a little bit early, 
But I would also think they would have to be making the calculation, can we win at the U.S. Supreme Court? Because that, like the 11th Circuit, is pretty conservative these days. Right. Uh, 305-995-1800 is the number to call. We're talking about the uh, recent uh, ruling on, uh, Court of Appeal ruling on St. John's County School Board policy, which, uh, which bathrooms a transgender high school student can use with Jim Saunders, Executive Editor at News Service of Florida. Uh, let's uh, go to the phones now and uh, Jeanette in Miami. Jeanette, uh, you're on the air. Hi. Jeanette, uh, hi. Go for it. Hello. I, I just wanted to say that I think it's uh, really unfair. And what about the right of the individual transgender person? Why can't he or she go to the bathroom? I mean, that's, what about his, that person's right? Um, there, aren't they taking that into account? I disagree with that uh, ruling. I just mm -hmm. think that's not right. Jeanette, thank you so much. You can also uh, send us a tweet as well. We are at Florida Roundup. Let's go now to Nicole Parker, the Director of Transgender Equality at Equality Florida. Nicole, thanks for being with us. Your organization's reaction to this appeals court decision. Yes, thank you so much for having me. You know, it's so disappointing to see this. And as a trans person, I can tell you firsthand, it's very hard to navigate life. Like life is difficult for everyone in the world, but adding being transgender on top of that is really difficult. And when we really look at what we're talking about here, it's access to the restroom. It's simply allowing someone to use the restroom. And, you know, school districts have had inclusive policies for decades. And it's just really sad to see, you know, these things coming up and these issues becoming issues when they're really not. Because like I said, we're really just talking about someone wanting to use the restroom. Everyone has to do it. We're all human beings. And trans people should be able to use the restroom just like anyone else. Can you give voice to these students, these youth, what impact uh, this ruling will have on them and what they're saying about it? Yeah, you know, being a kid is already difficult and navigating life and figuring out who you want to be and where do you land on, you know, in this world and then being trans on top of that and coming to terms with your identity is really very difficult. And the amount of students who hold going to the restroom until they get home because they're scared of situations like this or they're scared of discrimination that they'll reach it happens every single day. And I think that's not, that's what people aren't really realizing is that these are kids just wanting to use the restroom and go back to class or go back to whatever it is that they're doing at school. And, you know, it's just kind of mind blowing to me what things have truly become large issues. You know, the federal government believes that every student should be protected, including trans and LGBTQ plus students. Title IX does as well, and we really should follow that. Hate crimes and violence against transgender people are on the rise, according to Equality Florida. Can you uh, explain how these legal decisions are potentially impacting the community in terms of their voiced concerns about their safety? Yeah, you know, there's already a lot of rhetoric around trans people. People have opinions and, and call us every name in the book. And the disproportionate rate of violence that trans people face, particularly Black trans women, is astronomical. Um, last year was the deadliest year on record for trans murders, which was 57 plus. And why we say plus is because sometimes those are not reported as the individual was trans or sometimes folks did not know. Um, so we know that there are more than are counted. And things like this perpetuate that violence. There's already people who see us as targets, who see us as people that do not deserve to be here. And that's rhetoric I've heard to my face, um, especially in doing this work and transitioning 10 years ago, before these were wide talked about conversations, navigating life and just going through life was very, very difficult. And things like this really perpetuate that violence because it just creates this idea that we're not human beings and that we don't deserve to use the restroom or and things of that nature. And it just really takes away our humanity. And it's truly important to understand that whether you understand the trans experience or not, we're human beings, just like everyone else that just want to be happy and live life. 305-995-1800. Charles in Jacksonville. Hi, Charles. 
Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. Happy New Year. You, you too. Know, I'm, uh, I'm uh, uh, motivations for um, attacking uh, the the trans and gay kids so bad. I mean, it's almost like there's an element of self-loathing there that maybe he likes to dress up in Casey's underwear when uh, he's alone at home. All right, let's. Uh, this is a family show. Let's uh, let's not get into. Uh, those kinds of comments. But that said, Nicole Parker, uh, what about the governor uh, so aggressively going after your community in terms of a political calculus, your reaction? Yeah, you know, I think it's truly all just we're low hanging fruit. We are the choice target for this. I, I truly don't believe that he cares about trans people or anything of that nature. It's just a wedge issue. He knows that the trans community is a community that's maybe not widely understood and that people don't get. And this is all for political gain for him to be able to, you know, fulfill his political ambitions. But at the end of the day, we're human beings and we just want to be happy and live just like everyone else. And I really wish that people would just see that and understand that instead of continuing with the rhetoric and continuing talking about us and having all of these opinions when many people have never even met someone who's trans. I guarantee you, if you do and you just have one conversation, you'll see the experience completely differently. Well, that's what Equality Florida works on, right? Uh, raising awareness and understanding. Tell us about that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in my job, I do um, a lot of media like this, but I also do a lot of presentations or speaking engagements. And the biggest thing I like to do in there is make sure that there is an open dialogue, a portion. And in that, I make sure that folks know that this is a safe space to ask questions. Let's talk about it. Because I truly feel that if you can just have a conversation with someone and understand, even if you may not understand the whole experience, but even just walk away with one more nugget of knowledge, that's how we create more of a world of understanding, more grace and more, you know, just love around the world. And I know I mentioned grace and that's something that we have to give each other. And I give that a lot, you know, in my presentations where I'm like, listen, you don't have to know everything. You don't have to know anything about it, but it's just about having that open mind of wanting to learn or maybe wanting to know the other's experience because there's many things in the world that I don't understand, but I'm definitely open to listening and opening to try to understand. And we hope and I think people, if we all have that mind. And we hope oh, people keep listening. Um, your calls about this issue in a moment on the Florida Roundup, 305-995-1800, that and more next. the Florida Roundup. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. Well, we're talking about a court of appeal ruling on St. John's County School Board policy on which bathrooms a transgender high school student can use. We're with Jim Saunders, executive editor at News Service of Florida, and Nicole Parker, director of transgender equality at Equality Florida. And we are taking your calls, 305-995-1800, and your tweets at Florida Roundup. 
Let's go to Kevin in Destin. Uh, Kevin, you're on the air. Uh, good afternoon, gentlemen. How is it, and ladies? How is everyone today? Very good today. Thanks. What's on your mind? Um, you know, I I look at the, the the students today compared to the students when I was in high school. I think they're far more tolerant. It seems like we have um, adults making decisions. I think kids should have a, a say in. I think kids are far more tolerant. I think that same thing with athletes. I, I think that athletes are more tolerant and. It's going to affect them. I just wish their voice was a little more listened to because I don't think if it came down to the students voting or having a bigger say that they would really care who comes in and uses their bathroom. Now, yes, there's still bullying going on, but I mm. think the tolerance has just gotten so much better nowadays that the students really should have a true voice in what's going on in their school. Uh Kevin, thanks so much for your call. I appreciate that. Well, uh, Nicole, what are your thoughts on that? Do you see a, a kind of a sea change, a new generation coming through and and more tolerant and acceptance? Yeah, I would have to definitely agree. I think it's a beautiful thing when we look at the younger generation who really just see people for people and, you know, aren't so judgmental. And I think it is. It's us adults who are really have our preconceived notions and our ideas of how the world should be that we are uh, creating these policies and things of that nature. So I definitely have to agree with you. Uh, let's go then to uh, William in Orlando. William, what's on your mind? So two things are on my mind. The first thing is the way this is being positioned by some of the earlier callers to be just a matter of we just want to use the bathroom. People just mm -hmm. want This is not simply, oh, I just want the right to use the bathroom. You know, historically, the safest and the most uh, clearly defined common denominator to a signed bathroom was and is physical anatomy. If you have this anatomy, you use this. If you have this anatomy, you use this. Regardless of how you feel or identify, based on the pure fact of your physical anatomy, in this moment in time, this is your assignment. I'm a six foot two, 225 pound male. If I walk into a lady's bathroom, public environment, they are going to call the police. And I just want to use the bathroom. It's not that simple, and that's not the issue. And as far as the, the previous caller about allowing students to have more say, well, where does that stop? Do we go all the way down to elementary school? Do we let kindergarten, first graders, third graders make the rules and have a bigger voice? There's a reason that adults make decisions. And the decision-making power needs to stay at a level where people can comprehend consequences for making decisions. Uh, William, thanks so much for weighing in. I appreciate that. Uh, Nicole, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, it does, is it as simple as saying it's just a question of anatomy? Uh, does that call have a point? What would you say to that person? Um, you know, thank you for calling in. I, I, I hear what you're saying, but at the end of the day, you know, federal government protects transgender students and Title IX protects transgender students um, and allows them to use the bathroom that they identify with. And we need to make sure that we are following and adhering to these policies. So while I hear what you're saying, there are affirming policies that have been in place for decades. Um, and it's not like transgender people just popped on the planet. We've been here since the beginning of time and we've been through school and using the restrooms and things of that nature. We're just now seeing because this topic is now a political topic and it's being used in different ways. Folks are now talking about it, but inclusive policies have been around for decades. And it's just about making sure that, you know, transgender students are able to use the restroom and feel comfortable to do that. Jose in Port Lawrence, Florida. Hi, Jose. What's your question? Hi. Yeah. So, uh, well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And um, I was wondering, as I read, the, as I heard the description of the case, as I understand, the school provided a gender-neutral bathroom. I'm just wondering why that was not a sufficient solution to address the needs of the trans students. Uh, thank you. Thanks for that. Nicole? Yes, you know, I think that is, that's kind of one step, but at the same time, once again, kind of just going back to those policies, the policy says that a trans student should be able to use the restroom that they, you know, identify with. So having to go all the way across the school 
or go to find this specific bathroom can lead to people noticing that and trying to figure out, oh, why does this person have to go and use this specific restroom? And we've seen situations like that um, of parents calling in and saying that, you know, my student is using or being told to use this restroom and folks are noticing it and bullying them for it and things of that nature. But it's really about just adhering to those federal guidelines. Yeah, it, Jim Saunders, real quick before we say goodbye, uh, as she pointed out, there are federal guidelines in place that this appeals court ruling essentially sounds like conflicts with. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, and there are also court opinions in other parts of the country that this uh, opinion conflicts with. Um, the 11th Circuit, you know, it it is the it is the ruling that for Florida, Georgia, and Alabama, but there are other parts of the country that where, where courts have, have found differently on these issues. So um, there is a lot of debate out there about it. And ultimately it may require the U.S. Supreme Court to, 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 um, to determine, you know, kind of give a final word on the, these on issues. These issues. But, and uh, I, and I want to leave it there. We're almost out of time. Thank you, Jim Saunders, News Service of Florida. Nicole Parker, Equality Florida. Thank you both. And this is the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Well, this month marks 100 years since the Rosewood Massacre. In 1923, black residents of the Levy County town fled as a white mob raised their homes and wiped the community off the map. The violence began after a white woman in a nearby town accused a black man of assault. Eight people were killed, although some eyewitnesses say the actual death toll was higher. Now, at the time, the massacre generated national news, but for decades, the victims were silent and their story essentially disappeared. In 1993, the state legislature commissioned a report on the Rosewood slaying it formed the basis of a claims bill to compensate the victims. In 1994, then-Governor Lawton Childs signed a $2.1 million bill to compensate survivors and descendants from the Rosewood tragedy. Descendants, along with the University of Florida, are honoring the lives of those impacted by the Rosewood massacre this week in a series of events. Lynn Hatter reports that today the descendants have reclaimed their ancestors' stories and are using them to connect past to present in our politically and racially charged climate. I was always brought up in the presence of Rosewood. I always knew about it as a child. We went to the reunions every year. And that has also caused me to be politically inclined as well. Reagan Pickett is a student at Florida A&M University. She's also the beneficiary of a state scholarship designed for the descendants of Rosewood families. Pickett was born in 2002, and she grew up knowing the stories of what happened during that first week of January in 1923. Her family passed them down through generations. Having to come from um, losing everything that she once had, I think that is what has enabled my family to be so close. Like one of our number one values is to keep our family first. We just always put our family first in mind. And I think that has a lot to do with what our ancestors had to undergo in Rosewood. Jonathan Barry Blocker was in adulthood before he came across the story of Rosewood. The massacre began after a white woman claimed a black man assaulted her. A mob gathered in response and turned on the black residents of the town. For Blocker, a law professor at the University of Florida who practices civil rights law, the introduction came through the 1997 movie Rosewood. It chronicled the massacre. Blocker was still in college at the time the movie came out and his father warned him not to bring up Rosewood with his grandfather. Uh, because once an elder has told you, do not cross this line, do not go into this zone, you don't do it. And so I've, I'm what, almost 40 now, and I'm just starting to kind of peel back the layers and understand. So I think for us, it's being comfortable discussing what happened to us uh, and being vigilant that it not happen again. I always knew like during the Christmas holidays, uh, this time of the year, throughout after the first of the year, my grandmothers and those family members that they she was connected to, uh, if they were together, they were very depressed. And I would always ask my mother, why? And she's saying not old enough to understand. Gregory Doctor also grew up in the dark about what happened during that frigid week in early January of 1923. Doctor did not learn that history until 1982, around the time when his cousin, Arnett Doctor, started speaking publicly about it. For 70 years, they kept this embedded inside of them. I am very sure it affected them in some aspect of their lives as far as PTSD. 
Arnett Doctor was one of the original Rosewood descendants who helped seek and eventually win a claims bill from the legislature, which set up the scholarship program for descendants like Pickett, the FAMU student. But that work did not happen without help from many people determined to preserve the Rosewood story. Among them, attorneys with the powerful firm Holland and Knight, who spearheaded the legal effort. Holland and Knight attorney Martha Barnett helped win that settlement with the state in 1994. Her father was a physician who treated some of the survivors and even delivered their children, notes doctor. Uh, Martha Barnett's father's home, my birth certificate, and pretty much most of my family members and the death 30. So I knew Martha and her family very well and her niece. Others worked hard, too. Journalists like Gary Moore of the St. Petersburg Times, who unearthed the story and reported it in 1983. And historian Maxine Jones, a Florida State University professor who was the main author and investigator for the legislature's report on Rosewood. The University of Florida is hosting a week's worth of events starting Monday to mark the 100th anniversary of Rosewood. For WFSU News, I'm Len Hatter. And that's our show, The Florida Roundup, produced by WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville and WLRN Public Media in Miami. Heather Schatz, Natu Chue, and Brendan Rivers are producers. WLRN's Vice President of Radio and our Technical Director is Peter Mance. Engineering help from Doug Peterson, Charles Michaels, Isabella De Silva, and Jackson Harp. Richard Ives answers the phone. Our theme music by Miami jazz guitarist Aaron Lebos at AaronLebos.com. I'm Matthew Petty. And I'm Melissa Ross. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next Friday at noon.